The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we come to you now having just sung, requesting a miracle. That you would work in this room and in our hearts in such a way that these words written in a book has the effect of showing us the glory of the Son. We ask you to do that and we come dependent on you. We are like, we are like small children drawn up to the dinner table. Whatever you put on the table is what we're eating. And if there's nothing there, there's nothing to eat. But we trust you to be a good provider, to give us today our daily bread, to put in front of us your word, but more than just words on a page, to put in front of us the glory of Jesus. So please do that. Answer this request, please, Lord, for his honor and for our good. Show us Christ. Thank you. Amen. The English noun narcissist comes from the Greek proper noun narcissus. Very close. It's the name of a particularly handsome young Greek hunter, so the story goes, who could not find love. He was approached at various times, but he resisted all the advances. He never saw anyone that he was smitten by until he saw his own reflection in a pool of water. And he immediately fell in love with himself. Mesmerized by his own beauty, he was fixed, frozen there. In fact, he never went anywhere else, never did anything else, except look at himself until he died. One of the gods had warned against just this very thing of him becoming self-absorbed and it being the death of him, and, and that's what happened, of course. A cautionary tale about the futile, wasted life of the narcissist. I mean, of course, it's all made up. It comes to us from Greek mythology, right? You've probably heard the story. And in various forms you hear it, and it's got different details. It's, sometimes it's got multiple gods. Sometimes there's some cursing involved. Sometimes there's multiple advances from different people. But it always has in it the, the point, the danger of falling in love with yourself. It always ends with him being turned into a flower as a, as a constant reminder of that. So there's a good point made, even if it is a tall tale. Don't be a narcissist. Lots of Greek mythology works that way, right? The gods and humans interact in some way that, that teaches a lesson or gives a warning or explains the, the truth behind some event some phenomena. And though eventually most of society came to realize that all that was just made up, cleverly devised myths, they still hung on in the stories because they were interesting ways to give us helpful advice. Helpful, not authoritative. Interesting, informative maybe, but not binding. Myth. And that brings us to the central issue of the book of Second Peter which we now meet for the first time today in chapter 1, verse 16 and following. This human man, Jesus, is also God, 
fully God. He died, rose again, came back to life, ascended into heaven where he reigns as ruler and from where he is coming again to judge all of the earth. Know that and respond accordingly. In repentant faith and then with the obedience that comes from faith, not, not leads to faith, comes from faith. That's the Christian story, the Christian tale. Is it true? And if it is, where is the promise of this coming? That's the question raised in chapter 3, verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? It's been about, you know, 2,000 years now. 2,000 years. Is he coming? Is this real? Or is it a fabricated myth designed to teach and to warn and to explain some things, or worse, to frighten and control people and make them conform to some preferred standard of behaviors, of morals, whatnot? That issue had arisen in Peter's day, and it exists still in ours today. Some who had been among the church over time began to think, if this was real, it would have happened by now. It's not real. There is no reigning Christ Jesus. There was a man named Jesus, but to kind of give some explanation to his life and some of the things that happened, some of these stories arose, but he is not in heaven now reigning, and he is not going to return and judge everything. So eat, drink, and be merry. That's all there is. Come on. The rest of Second Peter addresses that objection in various ways. It's behind the whole rest of this book beginning this morning in verse 16. So I'm going to read verses 16 to 18 and then draw out the first response to that kind of an objection to this Christian faith. So here's 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Second Peter 1. Two observations, here's the first. The biblical teaching on the return and reign of Christ is rooted in witnessed reality. The biblical teaching on the return and reign of Christ is rooted in witnessed reality. Verse 16 specifies the teaching that Peter, along with the other apostles, made known to all the church and to us specifically the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, with, again, two words, as is often been the case, two words pressed together to one larger idea, the powerful coming, the coming in power of the Lord Jesus. The return of Christ as Lord and King, ruler in power, unlike he was the first time he came, when he came as a humble servant. As I said, that's the issue behind the whole rest of this book here. 
But obviously, it's not just in this book. They had previously taught it elsewhere. It's in the rest of the New Testament. It was surely part of their message as they traveled around the Mediterranean world, evangelizing people and then starting new churches. It was told frequently, he's coming back. And verse 16 is a counter, a denial of a denial. It's a counter to objections raised against that teaching. I want to remind you and leave you able to recall all these things. That's the end of verse 15. We saw that last week. I want to remind you and leave you able to recall because, verse 16, we didn't follow cleverly devised myth when we taught you about his second coming. We didn't pass on to you a tall tale someone else made up. We didn't make up one ourselves, but rather, end of the verse, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw things with our own eyes. Verse 18, we heard this voice with our own ears. We ourselves witnessed these things really and truly. That's what we followed, our own seeing and hearing. That's what we followed when we taught you and continue to teach you these things. So that's the point here witnessed reality, which is meant to work at two different levels. First, one level is, is speaking to the, the critic or the opponent, when it doesn't really believe this biblical Christian faith. Sometimes when we use that language, the faith, it inadvertently makes it seem that, that all of this content that we talk about is all just subjective. It's things we hold on to in blind faith. Teaching that we all, who are these Christian people, we all agreed with and we think is good and right, and so we kind of we hold it. But really, if you dig down beneath it, you, you kind of look at what's, what's, what's this resting on, where does this come from, it's just somebody's theories arguments that different people found good and made and kind of wove together to make a, a whole thing and then passed it on, kind of like ancient mythology. Useful, helpful, informative, we like it. It's like the mythology of, of the Greeks and the Romans or like the thousands of other religions and philosophies in the world today. And maybe even worse than just stuff we like Maybe it's stuff that's useful to us as a weapon. Teaching that we use to gain power and influence over others, to enrich ourselves. You see how this works? And this has been done. People in the name of Christianity have used this message as a weapon to enrich themselves, to hold other people down. Threaten people who don't do what you want with punishment in hell. And you can get somewhere. People have done that throughout history. But because somebody's done it doesn't mean that everybody's done it. Doesn't mean that's all that's here. It has been done, though. And people suspect that's what we're doing now. We, we pass on this message. We're kind of using it as a power play. But really what's beneath it all is just that it's useful for me. It's not resting on anything real, actually. It's my philosophy, my theory, what suits me, what helps me, and I, and I really like it, or maybe I really, really, I mean, I'm really convinced it's true. Really. 
It appeals to me. It suits me. It, it, it clicks. And so I like it, and I gather together my friends, and we press it home to others. We enforce it. That's how all the rest of the world works, in fact. That's how all the other religions work, in fact. Probably the Christian faith, too. No, it isn't how the Christian faith works. At its foundation, at the foundation of this faith, at the bottom level, is an observed, perceived, physical, historical reality. People heard Jesus teach, saw him walk around, watched him heal people. Blind people could see again because Jesus told them to see. Lame people, people who could not walk from birth, Jesus told them to get up and start walking, and they were able to and did. People who were dead, Jesus said, come out of the grave, and Lazarus did. Get up off that funeral stretcher, and the guy did. And then, top it all off, Jesus himself came back from the dead. People saw him hung on a cross. Thousands of people did. People saw the Roman executionary squad, whose job it was to get people dead, successfully accomplish their mission and take him down. People carried his limp, chilling body, wrapped it up, put it in a tomb, and then the next day, next day, next day, ate lunch with him. Follow that? Dead? The next day, the next day, the next day, ate lunch with him and embraced him and put their fingers in the holes, smelled his breath again, touched him, saw him. It's real. Instead of philosophy, it's concrete. There's a body there. There's a body of truth, facts that we then trust in faith. It's faith in those facts, not faith in my thinking. Faith in those facts. And, and certainly, for sure, those facts about things that happened and the faith in the things that happened does mean that we do have a faith in things that have not yet happened. That's not a blind faith, though. That's a rooted faith. Faith in that because that happened. And they're connected. The entire Christian faith is rooted in witnessed reality, in this case specifically in the event of the transfiguration. We saw, we heard. Now, whether you believe us or not, you can judge based on what you think of our lives. Do our lives lived out match lives of people who would have seen something like that? I mean, you judge it. The apostles all died for this message. People don't die for something they know they made up. The apostles all together kept this message and all together died for it. People don't keep a lie and all together die for something they know they all made up. So you judge for yourselves. But they claim to have been witnesses of something real. There's a point there to the person who doesn't believe, who is rejecting, who's kind of setting it aside saying, no, no, no. It's like so many other things, so many other philosophies these guys claim they saw something real. They didn't enrich themselves. They actually gave their lives away for it. They didn't use it as a weapon. They died in, in belief. So there's a point there at that level. This faith is rooted 
It's set on, it's, it's grounded in an actual reality. There's a point there. But that's not actually the point that Peter's trying to make. In a sense, that's all on the side. Worth pointing out, but not the point. Because this letter is not written to the critics who are leveling this charge. There, there are people who are, who are saying that's not true, he's not coming back, but he's not talking to them. You read the whole letter, you realize he never actually engages with them. It's about them, but he's, he's writing to, he's speaking to the faithful Christian church who believes this already, and perhaps for the first time is, is kind of wondering, maybe has, has raised in their minds, why do we believe this? I mean, those people say we shouldn't. They say the apostles just made this all up. Say it's a myth. Where did it come from? I'm suddenly curious. I wonder if there's something there that they say is there. So, Peter, tell me, where'd you get this? At that level, this is intended to clarify and explain to the church where Peter got this teaching and how trustworthy it is. He wants to clarify, actually, we saw and we heard what we've been telling you. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you know about that. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we saw and we heard, and that's why we teach the powerful second coming of Jesus. We saw his majesty and heard the voice of heaven, the voice of God. The transfiguration is in three gospel accounts. And every Christian would have heard of it, as have probably every Christian today, most of us at least. Jesus took Peter, the guy writing this, and James and John with him up onto a high mountain. And while he was there, he was physically altered. He was transfigured. A supernatural event. Right before their eyes, Jesus' face was made to shine like the sun. And his clothing, the rest of his visible body, blazing so white, it was whiter than anything could possibly be bleached in all the world, says one of the accounts. So you look at Jesus and he's shining and glowing. He is just can't look at him so amazingly bright, which would have been stunning. But there's more. Moses and Elijah appeared and talked with Jesus. Carried on a conversation with him. Luke specifically tells us that they were talking about Jesus' exodus, his departure, which was about to happen at Jerusalem. The story of the cross, death, resurrection, ascension. His leaving of the world. But Peter, overcome with this shocking event there, he offers to build a tent for each of the three of them, to build three tents so that they, rather than leave, so they can stay. They have a place to stay so they can stay here with us and be here. The exact opposite of the plan points out that he really wasn't thinking everything through. He just was just offering an, an idea, trying to be helpful. And, and while he's saying those things, a bright cloud overshadowed them, the cloud of the presence of God. When Israel wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, God's presence went with them, a cloud of fire by night and the cloud of, 
a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. This is the cloud of God's presence that comes over them and covers them, envelops all of them, and from the cloud comes a voice. If, if we were in the mountains today and you heard a loud voice, that would be very surprising, but we live in an era of PA systems. And you'd immediately suspect somebody set up something here. There's something going on here. There's nothing like that in their world. They're out in the middle of nowhere, and a loud voice comes to them out of the cloud. Shocking. And it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they collapsed in terror. I'm sure they did. They're overwhelmed by it. They collapsed in terror. And Jesus touches them, calms them. They open their eyes, and it's over. The cloud's gone, Moses and Elijah are gone, Jesus is back to normal, it's over. What was that? What was that about? That's the second point, we'll come to that. But what Peter's saying, first off, is nobody told me that story. That happened to me. I was there. I was the guy who offered to build the tents. That was me. And James and John, two other witnesses, were there and also saw it. That's where all this teaching comes from. Other teaching, too. There's a lot of stuff being taught in the transfiguration. But, but this teaching about the second coming comes from right there. One thing in particular there. And I want to remind you of this, church, he says. It leads us to the second point. But first, we have to stand on biblical teaching on the return and reign of Christ is rooted in witness reality. Know that. Something for the person who is suspicious and critical to consider, yes. But especially church, know that. Be encouraged by that. Be reinforced with that. Oftentimes, we know these things, and then we are, are challenged by something, and, and something in the back of our mind says, really? And Peter's saying, I was there. Really. I was there. It happened to me. I saw it. I heard it. It's factual. It's true. It's not just our preferred philosophy or the way we like to live, the way we were raised here in the Western world. No, 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 no. It's true. It happened, but what does it mean? That's the second point. The transfiguration shows us Jesus as the coming king of Psalm 2. The transfiguration shows us Jesus as the coming king of Psalm 2. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible and you, you notice that different events are in different places in the Bible described differently, like the transfiguration is, when you, when you notice that, pay attention to the differences. Because often the differences reveal the particular point that one author is trying to make in comparison to another. So with that in mind, 
What do you note here? I just quickly described the transfiguration, and so does Peter here. What do you note here when you compare the two? Well, here in 2 Peter, no mention whatsoever of Moses and Elijah. None. And the quote, the voice of God from the cloud, it's mentioned here in verse 17, it stops right before the command, listen to him. Kind of the punchline in the Gospels, but left out here. Because 2 Peter is not talking about Jesus as a great prophet, like Moses or Elijah, one we would have to listen to. Rather, verse 16 says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, an attribute of a king. Majesty, which was there on Jesus to be seen because, verse 17, God the Father bestowed it upon him, placed it on him. Not only when he changed his physical appearance, though that too, when he made him to shine like that, he was, he was physically showing just how glorious and, and brilliant and marvelous, he, he, just how divine he really is. Jesus walked around the earth looking very, very, very human. All of that was covered up in, in a scraggly beard with Palestinian dust and a, you know, common clothing. He would have looked like a guy. And here, God does something to kind of like change that, to show us something of his, of his majesty and, and how he physically looked. But more than that, the Father spoke and in so doing bestowed on him honor and glory. Again, two words there, a single compound idea. Honorable glory. Glory with honor. A glory that is more than just amazing sensory brilliance. We sometimes use that word to talk about just something that's amazing. We can talk about something in nature being glorious, like a, a sunset perhaps. It, that's, that's just glorious, we say, because it takes our breath away. It's marvelous to look at. We can talk about even attributes of God. Commonly in the Bible, it'll say something like the glorious grace of God. Because again, grace takes our breath away. It's marvelous. We don't give honor. We don't bestow honor on a sunset or honor even on grace itself because honor is something more personal, much more about esteem. Maybe even you might, you might say nobility or respect. It's this glory with honor that he's talking about here. Glorious in a way that calls for honoring, that, that invites us to, to bow down, to pay homage. This honorable glory was set upon Jesus by God the Father. Put yourself there. You've got to kind of go for a second. The voice of God, the majestic glory himself, spoke of Jesus out of a cloud. You, do you, do you see the, the mountaintop there? Are you in the midst of not just like a morning mist in the mountains, but a cloud that you know isn't mist? A cloud descends on you, and a voice 
comes out of it. That's, that's coming, you know, from majesty, and it's talking about something glorious. And there is the figure shining brightly, and other biblical figures have come and presented themselves. It, it's, it's all these images wrapped up in back and forth, and you, you're right there in the middle of it. And then you hear a voice. Can you, can you hear the voice? And the voice says out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Or really, it strikes us maybe a little bit differently, though it's awkward in English, if you take it literally. My son, my beloved, this one is. That's the literal way it's put. My son, my beloved, this one is. As if answering the question, which one's my son? Which one's my beloved? That one, right there, this one is. We sometimes misunderstand those terms because we hear in them something that's about like familial endearment. This is my boy, and I love him. My son, my beloved one, no. That's not it. This is a, a bestowing of honor, a, a placing of a crown on the head of Jesus. This is a draping of a majestic robe around his shoulders. An inauguration or a coronation or an enthronement, whichever word fits there for you. This is saying, I have a son, I have a beloved one, this one is. From the first utterance of the ancient promise to King David, the Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, from that moment on, God held out a great promise to set a descendant of David on the throne over God's people, to reign and to rule like God, to set up God's kingdom, and to put down all of God's enemies, and to put down evil itself. From of old, the promise was one from David is going to come and he's going to sit on the throne of righteousness and justice, like two great stones, righteousness and justice. He's going to put his chair on that. He's going to sit down and he's going to make that happen, not just here, but everywhere. He will put down all enemies and all evil. And in the language of 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he will be to me my son and my steadfast love will not depart from him, my beloved one. That's the language of the covenant. And from then on, year after year and king after king, it was repeated across the centuries in the language of Psalm 2, coronation psalm. Descendant of David after descendant of David would come and would sit on a throne and take on his head the crown and then would fail. Do you realize the ah, oh, that is the history of Israel? Ah, oh, a king, oh no, again and again and again and again because righteousness and justice wasn't remotely a part of the throne. They could not defend the people of God. They could not deliver them to peace. They could not put down evil, even in their own houses. David, not even in his own house, let alone over all the earth. 
unable to bring in honor and glory and kingdom until one day on a holy mountain everything changed. My son, my beloved, who? Him. This one is. My king I would set up on Zion, my holy hill. I promised him to David. I spoke of him in the decree of Psalm 2. You are my son, with you I am well pleased. I spoke by my prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 42. I'm going to raise up a servant. I'm going to put my spirit on him, one in whom my soul delights, and he will bring my kingdom to all the earth. Who? This one. That's what we heard when we were with him on the mountain, the holy hill. That's why we make known to you the powerful coming of the Lord. Because what we heard and what we saw hasn't happened yet. Psalm 2 and the Davidic decree in the covenant is, is about something that hasn't happened yet. All the nations rage like a tossing, heaving, stormy sea. Waves rise and fall and crash as all the peoples of the earth, great and small, kings and people in authority, down to everybody who walks on every street and every land. All together they scheme and contest with one another against the Lord and against his decrees. Let us make our own way. Is this not still present in the world? Psalm 2 starts right there. That's the beginning of Psalm 2 with a world that is in turmoil, in conflict and in chaos because all of the world together thinks that the law of God is nothing but chains. Restrictive bondage. And so the world all together is scheming and plotting. How can we get rid of all that? How can we throw it away? How can we get out from under it? How can we discard this God and all these rules and go our own way into what seems right in our own eyes? And everything that results is chaos and so much conflict and so much bloodshed and so much wickedness. And God sits in heaven and laughs. Still in Psalm 2. That's not the chuckle of a dad amused at the, the wanderings of his kids. It's the God who holds all the world in derision. This is terrifying. This is terrifying. God says, I have an answer to that. We're going to be done with that, says the Lord. This is terrifying. 
I look over all the earth and I see what's going on and I have an answer. I'm going to put down the rebellion and in fact I have already begun. See, I have put my king on Zion. This one. My son, my beloved. The crown will rest on his head, the scepter, that is the rod of iron in his hand. And he will break the nations like so much clay pottery. I have an answer to this. This is cold wind in your face, take your breath away sobering. Ask of me, my king, and I will give all the nations to you, all the ends of the earth to you, and you will reign over them, and you will sit on righteousness and justice and put down every square inch of evil. A great righteous judge promised to come. That's who he is. The majestic one, the Messiah with rod of iron placed in his head, crown on his head, great omnipotent power ready to break the nations. That's the son of Psalm 2. And the fact that that hasn't happened yet is why the apostles preached a second coming in power. But the fact that that hasn't happened yet should knock you over in astonishment. This is the Christ who has the scepter in his hand and said, I'm going to put that down for a second right over here. I'm not throwing it away. I'm just putting it down for a second. I'm going to step over here and in humble mercy say, please come. That should astonish you. If you've read Psalm 2, that should astonish you. Because you see the scepter right there, and you get the psalm, and you understand the, the wrath of the Lord against all kinds of evil and wickedness, but that the God who is would be so, so astonishingly, gloriously merciful that he would say, not yet, first, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, all you who are suffering under the chaos and the conflict and the insanity of the beginning of Psalm 2. If that's you, come find mercy. I set down the rod of iron to take into my side the spear of iron and the nails of iron. I've got a plan. That's coming, not yet. Right now, come to me, all you who are weary. Come, 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 come. I will forgive, I will save. That's why I'm here. That's astonishing. Astonishing. It's so very gloriously kind. This God is amazing. Don't get lost in the terrifying. First, be blown away by the gracious and merciful. Oh my goodness. The rod of iron set down for a moment means that he has made space on purpose to appeal in mercy and to show it with humble self-sacrifice. 
The one who is this king for a moment set aside the right to be regarded like that and said, I come as a human, as a humble servant. I'm going to actually come to go to the cross for you. Come to me. But do realize this. The scepter is still there on the table to be picked up. That's why the apostles preached he's coming again in power. He will enact justice and righteousness over all the earth on all who did not want his saving help who refuse him. Judgment is coming. It must given who he is. Right now, as we don't see him as that yet, what are we to do? Well, don't despair. Don't despair. It hasn't not yet been picked up because God forgot or because he's lazy or asleep or bored. No, it's because he's patient and merciful. And every bit of the, every, every moment in which he waits is, is the moment that allowed you to come. Will he put a stop to it all? Is he coming? Is there any consequence for sin? Uh, yes, absolutely, he is coming, there is consequence. But in the moment, until he comes, give thanks for his merciful patience. Don't doubt that he's coming and don't despair and above all, don't presume that because he hasn't come yet, he's not coming. Psalm 2 ends with a call to kiss the son right now, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way when he picks up the scepter. Kiss the son right now where you have a chance. Embrace him in loyal friendship now where you have a chance because Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Even if you have to hang out in that refuge for a couple thousand years, like Peter has, or me a decade or two. His patience gives us room to experience the blessing of taking refuge in him. Take him up on that Give thanks for it. Do not despair. What the apostles teach us, they teach us because of what they saw and heard of the glory and the justice of the king. And in the meantime, give thanks for his mercy and come to him. Let me pray. Father, please work even now and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year if you still don't come, if you still don't send your son, work even now to draw in others. We who are here now say thank you for waiting this long. If you'd sent him last century, none of us would be with you in heaven. You waited, thank you.
Give us rest in that. Give us a, a hope and a confidence that you are, in fact, going to fulfill. You've done so much of what you said, you will do the rest. Give us a confidence in that, and a hope in that, a thankfulness in that. And continue to work now to draw in others. That's our prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.